Hey everybody, it's Chris and Rick Talk Guitars. I'm Rick, and that's Chris over there. Howdy. Hi. Um, we decided uh, to talk about a book today, and it, we're kind of, I don't know, I think we can recommend this book, right? Because it's I really good if you it. haven't read it. A lot, of peop- a lot of guitar people have probably read it, but Chris and I read it and just found it a really cool accounting of uh, the birth of the electric guitar. I mean, it's called The Birth of Loud. Uh, the subtitle is Leo, Fender, and Les Paul, and the Guitar Pioneering Rivalry that Shaped Rock and Roll. And the author is Ian S. Port. And this book, I couldn't put it down because it just did such a good job of telling this story um, from all the aspects, right? From the aspect of Fender, yeah. Gibson, uh, even Paul Bigsby, and all the other players within this universe of, of guitar people, so... Yeah, just capturing the climate of the time during that like mad scientist inventor yeah. rush that gave us the modern electric guitar. It's just a fascinating romp through that era. I mean, on both coasts and in between. Yeah, I felt the same way. And um, so we just wanted to talk about it and uh, recommend the book for those who haven't read it. And for those who have read it, chime in on social media and and tell us your favorite parts and Chris and I are going to just talk about it because we both after reading it we both got on the phone and just had good conversations about all the aspects of it but for me the thing that was just so cool that it, it, it's a reminder of you know we came uh, around at a time when electric guitars were already all over the place right yeah. guitar well established. We, yeah electric yeah. guitars were well established but you know you you you, you got to be reminded of of the fact that there were no electric guitars at one time, and there was a there was this philosophy about guitars in the guitar community that was, you know, so entrenched. You know, luthiers building you know fine instruments and stuff like that. And then when the telly came out, you know, some people thought it was just a plank of wood that any you know any ding dong with a bandsaw could produce. But uh, I just thought it was really fascinating to, to kind of revisit that and go, God, yeah, there was a time when this thing seemed like it was dropped out of the sky, you know, as this weird thing that you plug in and, and so different from previous guitars. You right. Know? And that's the thing about guitar players. I'm sure it was true back then and it's true now. So many are such traditionalists. Yeah. Seeing something like that must have been, no, that's not a guitar. That's blah, blah. It's exactly. a new paddle or whatever they called it. One thing I thought was really cool, too, was... There was a rush for for people to create the solid body guitar. And yeah. there, were, there were many attempts before, you know, the the big ones. But I thought it was interesting that you've had your inventors saying, "We need a solid body guitar." I've been trying. Here's here's the one I made. Here's the one I made. You know, it's not really there yet. But the guitar players, like Merle Travis, yeah, yeah. he like drew. Yep. He knew what he wanted. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm tired of feedback or whatever. I want this, and he drew a picture of it. This thing came about the solid body electric guitar from the inventor standpoint and the guitar standpoint, and everybody was like kind of mingling and sharing ideas to to get us to that place. Exactly. And the, the rivalry in that book it, it captures that really well. And you know, all through the it, both Leo and Les Paul's lives, they talked about like what was first, and you know, it was just kind of like they were clinging to their versions in the end as guitar players we don't care exactly we got, I mean, those, both of those people it's win-win yeah yeah knocked it out of the park totally we've yet to do anything better or you know yeah or, you know if they pretty they pretty much nailed it i from agree the and speaking of that rivalry that's another thing i just dug about this book is the early years when they were come all in california 
Les Paul had moved to California yeah. and Leo was obviously there. And, you know, they'd go over to Les's house and, and shoot the shit about guitars and, and, you know, oh, what are you doing? And, and, and at that time, it was more of a friendship, maybe a friendly rivalry, right. you know, no, totally. but as time went on, it became more of a, a real rivalry. Shit but, got real. Yeah, shit got real. But I dug uh, reading about that time period because it just seemed so cool, like, you know, Exactly. Like you were saying, they, they were serving a need. Like guitar players at the time were playing uh, semi-hollow or hollow body guitars and, and some semi-hollow body guitars. And then they would try to plug those into amps, but they obviously got feedback and stuff. And so they're going, well, you know, the players are going, well, I, I you know, yeah, I'd love a guitar that I could plug in and get. And they wanted to be loud, right? Because they were in a band context. So, right. so the guitar was always drowned out because it couldn't get loud enough, right? And unless Paul was a real inventor and a real innovator because he built his own guitars. He built that aluminum guitar that had no headstock. But yeah, I I just dug that kind of friendly rivalry as it started out in California. And then as things progressed, it it started to get, like you say, shit got real. And, but, um, I just, I just, I just envisioned these guys in the sunny atmosphere, you know, picking fruit from their citrus trees, talking about guitars and shit. It's really cool. A really good picture of that. So you can really visualize you know, that era and that kind of like, you know, they're hanging out in Les Paul's garage yeah. talking about stuff. One thing I found interesting was like when they're talking about like the materials used to make the first solid body electric guitars. You think about today, the guitarist who goes into shop and he's like, I'm going to get a Telecaster. I want a really light one. They like back then it was the exact opposite resonance. They were trying to get rid of like any sort of resonance and just make it, you know, about the pickup and the strings. Yeah. And now it's like kind of turned around where it's like, yes, I want a Telecaster that's really resonant, unplugged and yeah. sounds good. But that was for the furthest thing from their mind. Really. Totally. And especially Les Paul, because he, he, he got it and he got it right away. He said, no, I just want a pickup that's going to pick up the strings, the vibration of these strings. So it doesn't matter what it's a- attached to. And that's why he built it out of aluminum. He's like, it doesn't matter what the material is. I want to be able to plug this thing into an amp, have it not feedback, you know, and be loud enough to be heard in a band context. So he was building these crazy things. He called them. What did he call them? He called them some name like. Oh, I, I remember. Know he, saying, but I don't yeah. Remember but anyway, uh, he, you know, and Mary Ford, he and Mary Ford would refer to these crazy guitars that he built as these whatever clunkers. Clunkers, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Clunkers. But they were cool because that, to me, at that time period, to to understand that and to make that connection, I think is huge, right? Because like we were talking about, there's a paradigm that's established. It's like, no, this is what a guitar is. It's it's this acoustic thing that's finely crafted by these luthiers and, and, and... Hundreds of years of tradition. Exactly. And Les is like, well, that's all well and good, but here's what I need. And and like the artists were saying that too. And that's another thing I dug about Leo is he was so in tune with listening to players. He'd go to shows and he'd, he'd watch them play and he'd go up on stage and tinker with things, Yeah, you know, and then get off stage. And, and uh, that is invaluable because he wasn't doing this in a vacuum. None of this was happening in a vacuum, but Leo especially, I think was so cool because he, he really got it in terms of like serving these musicians, right? Like what's your, what, what problems are you encountering? Okay, well let's try to address those. And that's right. what he did. And again, uh, I, I, another thing I dug was was the the way Leo came about it or or went about it versus Gibson, right? Gibson was that traditional staid company where no, we have luthiers that have done it, and and Leo's like, well, I, that's great, but I want to build a guitar that can be easily repaired, right? That's sturdy, that's going to stay in tune, not and yes, inexpensively made, but 
in terms of quality, affordable. Was a better but, term. Yeah, for, but yeah. he wanted to build quality instruments that that met those that criteria. Yeah, no, know? that's because I've run into people who say just say that Leo Fender, um, his contribution was he he wanted to make things cheaply. Yeah. No, he wanted to make things affordably. Yeah. But you know, serviceability and quality was was a big part of exactly what he he strove for, and um, he got it. I yeah. Think. I think so, too. And to that point, early on in the Fender story, when they were building all these guitars and they were having a lot of quality issues, remember? And and it was a big deal with the company. That's when, like, they kind of made this shift to really focus on quality. And, like, they burned all of this old stock that they had. Like, they just burned it, like, that was either returned or whatever. And then they that was kind of the birth of, like, really paying, trying to pay attention of, of of meeting the criteria that I set out to, but in a, in a quality minded way. Right. And I've played like broadcasters and there's like a homemade made in someone's garage quality to those things. You just feel it's like, this seems handmade by one person and they slowly dialed that out. So you, they, you know, they had this quality standard that they set up, you know, they definitely got more consistent. Exactly. And, but I, I just dug that because they're just totally different schools of thought. Right. And Gibson again, wanted to produce this, you know, beautiful instrument that was really geared more to professionals too. Right. And that's another thing that I think Leo, not only him as a, as an engineer and a designer, but his whole uh, marketing staff and sales team wanted to market these guitars to beginners and people who may not you know what I mean? Like, weren't they weren't professionals? I mean, he, he was trying to accommodate professionals no, because he was trying he was to talking, be inclusive. More but he was trying to be for, inclusive of saying like, we're yeah. not just we're not just offering these professionals. We're offering these to anybody who wants to learn how to play guitar or is intermediate or whatever. You know, whereas yeah. Gibson and I think Gibson obviously wanted to do that too. But but in terms of their mindset about how they thought about their products, I think they thought about them much more preciously, right? Like, like more of like an East Coast jazz vibe. Yeah. It's like we're serving yeah. these these types of musicians. You know, our guitars are going to have a set neck, yep. like you know, yeah. the hundred year old method of putting a neck on a guitar, and yeah. you know, they're going to be carved and have a you know all the. You know, one thing that's really interesting about that was you look at that. And, you know, the Gibson guitar was way more, you know, seemed way more costly to build. Oh, yeah. There's a lot more. But the, the price difference wasn't that right. big. If you consider it inflation or all that stuff, the gap isn't that huge. That's true. It's not like as huge as it is today, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's an interesting point, too. I was I was kind of interested in, in seeing the prices, too, from that far back. That I, I thought they seemed kind of high for that time period, actually. For the family, you know what I mean? like, yeah. yeah. It's like, here it is. We got a bolt like, on that. Slap these things you know, because, together, you know? Yeah, because a brand new car, like, in the 60s and stuff, costs, like, two grand or something. Right. But the, you know, yeah, I thought that was interesting, too, to see well, those wait, prices. It was right around the $300 mark, yeah, right, for the yeah, first Yeah, exactly. Calling. And yeah. Um, Telecaster was, like, 260 yeah. or something like that. so not I, a lot of difference I, in I'm price. Probably not exactly right on those numbers, but it, no, it but just I, made me say, wow, that's not a huge difference. Like, if yeah. you think about it today, yeah. I mean, you can get a standard Fender Stratocaster for, what, like, 12, like, retail or something? Yeah. Like and it's, like, three for a Gibson or something like right. that? Right, yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the margin wasn't as wide. Yeah. And another thing I dug was the Paul Bigsby aspect of it, too. He he was was a character and he was cool. And he was like he was a guy that could do all of that stuff by himself. He could do, you know, the designing and the machine work and all that other crap. And he he fancied himself just like a a builder of fine instruments, really. You know, he didn't see himself as a mass production. No, it's more of a one off guy. Yeah. And I kind of I was uh, I was really I thought it was funny how Leo Fender and Les Paul both you know, uh, didn't admit to borrowing that, that Merle Travis guitar right. and then checking it out, which they did. There's proof that they did, that they borrowed that guitar from, uh, from Paul Bigsby. And, and at the time too, it was cool that he wasn't really even like competitive in terms of like caring, 
You know what I mean? About uh-huh. that stuff until he saw the strat and he saw, remember, he saw the headstock and he saw things that were like, hey, that's that's a ripoff of my, the stuff I right. put into this initial guitar. Yeah. And then he's like, God damn it. But uh, I thought he sounded like a really cool character to me. No, they all just seemed like cool, like weird, old, like mad scientist yeah. people. And you know what? One of the things when I was reading this book, I kept picturing in my mind was this story as like a TV series like Mad Men. You know oh, what I mean? Totally. Just to like, capture the era, the sales force, yeah. and you know, the advertising and just the, the crazy like little bit of drama. Because this book is written in a very, like fiction. It's yeah. written a lot like fiction and that's what makes it really good. When I got that book, I'm like, do I really need to read another book about Leo Fender or Les Paul? But obviously I did because it was it was great. And like you said, I like read it in two nights. Yeah. It just, it's a real page turner. Yeah, because the storytelling was just so well done. And uh, that's what I enjoyed about the book, too. And it's all um, it, it just it's it's covered in a way that that it's not done in a vacuum. It's just done in, in he refers to like the musicians that Leo was talking to at the time, like the country players and Dick Dale, for instance. Oh, who yeah. was He was another innovator, really. He pushed the limits of amplifier. Right. Uh, uh, manufacturing because uh, he wanted more power. He kept blowing speakers. Uh, and the way he played was really aggressive and he wanted to be loud and, and, and that was his style. And he hit it off with Leo and they worked together to create these heavy duty amps with 15 inch speakers and huge transformers that would withstand the abuse that uh, Dick Dale would put these amps through. I thought that was so cool. I know. Just like certain <laughs> artists that were responsible for so many things that we can go out and buy now. You yeah. Know, just like yeah. their input. Yeah. The Stratocaster had input from a lot of people. Oh, totally. That was interesting how that came to be. And one thing that was, it's hard to believe right now, is Leo Fender, when he created the Telecaster, he thought, oh, great, you know, I got, you know, my vision, this part of my vision is out, I've created this. And then when he came up with the Stratocaster, he was he got that to do away with the Telecaster. He yeah. thought that no one would buy a Telecaster now that the Stratocaster was available because that was his premier guitar. But people still, <laughs> to this totally. day, I mean, they're, they're different. He didn't grasp the different models, the value of different models back then. He just yeah. thought one would make the other obsolete. Yeah, and I thought that was so fascinating too. That and again, I guess you got to just go back to the time period and what he was thinking and how he, you know, the feedback he was getting from guitar players and everybody else. In his mind, he probably, you know, it was probably justified. He's like, okay, well, the Telecaster is going to die a slow death or, or an instant death after this. I've made this other guitar that that's, you know, better that. But again, like you're saying, it's like that's the cool thing about like all these models and how they've come into their own over time. Uh, like juniors and things like that. Like, you know, there was a time when people were like dismissive of these guitars, but right. over time people gravitated towards them and go, God, this suits me as a player, you know, and I love it. I love yeah. the telly, right? It's and, its own thing. Yeah. yeah like it's its own thing. It's Paul Jr. Yeah. It's like, it's a student model guitar that we decided, hey, we should cut some, we could make, you know, there's, there's a market for getting people into this, the guitar, you know, if the yeah. first guitar, let's make an affordable one. Yeah. And they end up creating a model that is so stands out so much on its own. It's just, it's just a model yeah. to have, yeah. you know, but I, yeah. And again, I just, just reading about the evolution of this, of electric guitars was so, you know, cause we, you and I both read, you know, articles or books that kind of cover it, but it's right. not as comprehensive as this or, or as well-written, I think. Um, but it's just always good to be reminded of like the way things were at a certain point in time, like, like even the music, right? Like rock and roll was not a thing in the late forties, early fifties. And then, you know, the convergence of these electric guitars and this new form of music that was happening was 
it was such a cool um, combination, right? Because, you know, you had these people who wanted to play this new form of music who also wanted new ways to they, they needed new ways to express themselves. Right? right. So it's like, oh, here comes these guitars that are that are kind of, well, totally different. Right. The, the way the body styles are, the paint, everything. And it's like, oh, they, that suits this new form of music that's just coming into its own. I thought that was so cool. Right. And one thing that I kind of take for granted myself is that before Leo Fender, there was no mass produced electric bass guitar that was uh, that yeah. was from outer space for a lot of people yeah like, what the hell is this right. i mean i hear a bass but i don't see a bass yeah. there. i just see guitars yeah and that you know something that didn't exist like in a, in a way that you could go out and buy the electric bass guitar so that's cool i mean even if leo fender only did that and that was all he ever did he would still be noted in the history of rock and roll. Oh, it's huge. That. Yeah. And then you add the other things he did, and it's, it's just pretty yeah. incredible. No, but the bass thing was another revelation to me, too. Because exactly, again, hearing from you know bass players, it's like, I don't want to have to carry this huge doghouse thing around, you know, a, you know, in a station wagon with full of gear. We had to put it on the roof and stuff, and sometimes it falls off, and it's hard. And also they mentioned, too, that it is a pain in the ass to play because right. there's no frets, all this other stuff. And that was a super, that was a huge revelation. And I loved it how they touched on Carol Kay. And she's like, she was a guitar player at the time, but she was kind of frustrated because of the stuff that she was playing. She was a jazz player initially. And then she kind of got this bug when she saw the electric bass. She's like, oh, that's cool. I can, I'll do that. She bought two precisions like in the sixties. And then she started to, to do more sessions as a bass player. And she, as we know, she's a great, she played on some of the most iconic music, you know, Beach Boys stuff and all that other stuff. And, And that was really interesting too, to see these guitars. If you think back, to what the climate was then like that like Carol Kay where it's like oh this thing exists now yeah I can do my thing and yeah. they go on to create create you know their contribution to rock and roll like you know with a Stratocaster there was you know Dick Dale was you know one of them but there was yeah. also the Hank Marvin yeah and um and um what's his name uh Buddy Holly yeah. I mean he you know he's like that his sound is so much the Stratocaster oh, I mean totally. those songs and the Stratocaster are just so ingrained. Like, I don't know what it would have been like if he would have had, you know, a Gibson or something right, like that. So, right, I mean, just seeing those things come together, you know, and converge, rock and roll, and the birth of the electric guitar, it was really cool. Yeah. And, that, and they told that story really well. Oh, yeah. I dug that, too. I just dug. And, and it's cool because the way it was written is you're just seeing it coming, right? It's like this train in the distance. Mm-hmm. You know, they're building these guitars, and then in the other side of the, you know, tunnel is this freight train coming towards you that's rock and roll and and in that vein it reminds me of um talking about gibson like they you know came out with the burst les paul that really didn't do much and the les paul at the time was was really not selling at all right and then gibson's like well shit okay well we're not going to make these guitars anymore they made the sg which les paul hated because he hated the horns and all this other crap and he didn't want to put his name on it but then meanwhile in europe these young guitar players somehow got a hold of a burst and they're like, damn, this thing is cool, you know? And then, so now they all want a, a, a burst. And so literally people were going to Les Paul's house, his house mm-hmm. and going, Hey, uh, I want to buy Les Paul from you. And he's like, well, I'm not Gibson. I, right. <laughs> you know, what do you want from me? No, because that's, that was like the birth of like the artist endorsement where you just seeing you know, right, not right. A, well, not a straight up endorsement, but just like picking up a record and seeing a guitar player 
with a, a certain type of guitar and going, I need that guitar. Yeah. It worked on both sides of the ocean. Yeah, but I, I just thought that was the picture in my mind was just so vivid of these people knocking on Les Paul's door and him coming to the right. door and say, I, but, you know, and again, like, um, you know, like for Clapton, he, he he's one of those English players that made the Les Paul uh, desirable to all these other players because he's, you know, at the time he was the blues breakers and he's had that Beano Les Paul and he's playing through that Marshall blues breaker amp and getting this just crazy sounds out of that thing. And so, you know, sure enough, all these, you know, young guitar players are like, God, I, that's what I want. I want this full throated, you know, freight train sound. Where can I, you know, I got to get me one of those. Well, they only made, you know, a few hundred of those bursts, you know, and so, right. and then in the late sixties, sure enough, Gibson started to reintroduce the Les Pauls into the, their canon of guitars again. Yeah. I thought that was cool. And again, like the thing I liked about it too, is just, they talked about the, all these characters pretty honestly, you know, as people, you know, right. that's, that's another thing I really dug about it. It's like, you know, they didn't, they didn't lionize any of these people. They just told you, you know, they were, you know, like Les Paul, for instance, he sounds like he was a complicated guy. All of them were, you know, they're right. human beings, no, no, totally. but, um, I dug that. I dug it that they didn't just like make it seem like they were these icon gods that, you know what I mean? Right, like left right. out some parts of their lives that, you know, yeah. so, I mean, I, I just think for any guitar player, you got to read this book. It's just, it's so well-written and it covers this, the, you know, the evolution of the electric guitar, so well and and i just think i've read other you know publications and stuff that kind of kind of covered in a vacuum you know like it just seems like it, it it's not it doesn't talk enough about what's going on around it you know and this really did right. for me yeah it just basically talks about the business and you know the instruments yeah. and things like that where this is like a story like i said it's like fiction exactly. so you get the feeling that you're reading a fiction. You can visualize it. It's, yep. it's written in a way that you can actually visualize the times and yeah. everything else. So, and I, I loved it. it. Yeah, and I loved it the way they talked about like the sales force for Fender, right? Because they were like, you know, like Don Randall and and those people were just like they were in it and they were bought in and they were trying to sell this stuff and and they it, it's so cool to to see how they marketed the guitars, right? Right. That it, was that was totally new. They marketed it as like kind of like an accessory. It wasn't just a guitar. It was like, you know, they they introduced like these colors, right? Like the automobile colors and stuff like that to their guitars and you know, Gibson again, you know, you they had like, you know, sunbursts and more wood tone, more more conservative stuff at the time. And then and then sure enough, as as things progressed, they came out with the V and the Explorer and and the Modern or whatever, all that stuff to try to kind of keep up with all this stuff, the change, the social stuff that was happening in the, yeah, I thought that was really cool. That was really cool. Yeah. And, and another thing I dug was the whole CBS thing, you know, oh, yeah. Leo was like a, a chronic worrier or, you know, he had stress all the time and it manifested itself in physical, in a physical way with him. Like he had that infection forever. Strap yeah. And so he finally, you know, and I thought it was really fascinating how when CBS was like auditing, you know, Fender and all that stuff and they were coming, you know, to the conclusion, well, you know, none of these people have degrees in engineering right. or any of this other shit. It's like, who are these yahoos, you know? That's what was so cool. About yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was great. I'd, ne I'd never really seen that deep into that, you know, the, the sale aspect of it from the way that they told it in the, in the story. Yeah. And me too. And, and I thought that was really cool because I think it shows how, just Leo's passion and the passion that all those people had for building these instruments and stuff and listening to players um, trumped 
you know, not, I mean, formal education is great, but I mean, you know, Leo had a gift for this stuff and he, he had his radio repair stuff and all this stuff. So he had experience doing this, but I just thought it was cool how like his sales team, everybody at Fender really didn't have formal degrees, but they were making this thing work. And, right. and at the time, you know, they sold the company for 13 million bucks, which was just unheard of. They, that, you know, Don Randall was beside himself because he thought, you know, well, we'll get three, three million maybe or something, right. but 13 million it ended up getting for the company. But I just thought that was cool. And then of course, you know, the CBS years, they, all those bean counter dickheads. One thing I, I, I wasn't really aware of before was how, scared fender was of solid state technology yeah. because he wasn't trained for that you right know? that was like you know more he was just like taught himself tubes you know and that's you know easy for someone to take on but you know the the advent of transistor stuff he's like i'm gonna be out of a job i can't you know i don't know this stuff well enough yeah so that was pretty interesting because i had never thought of that before and then interestingly enough they come out with the first solid state amps and they're just dog crap. Right. No, I thought that was cool too, because I had, I had no idea about that too, but it was fascinating to see where he kind of saw his own limitations as a, as an engineer. It's like, well, I know this stuff, but I know nothing about transistors. And if once that stuff takes over, I'm done. Yeah. I thought so that was a little really bit of insecurity on his part. You know, this dude that did all these revolutionary things is like yeah. kind of like scared of transistors coming down the, the, the road. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating, too. Well, cool, man. Yeah, I, I'm so glad uh, you recommended that book to me. I, I totally dug it. It's a page-turner. We recommend it again. It's The Birth of the, of Loud. It's a great book. It, uh, go out and get it or borrow it from your friends. Um, again, uh, 2020, we're in the new year. We're going to try to hit it hard, man. And uh, keep listening if you're out there. And, and check us out on social media. Chris, you got anything to say? No, just, you know, again, anybody listening, thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we dig doing this. All right. Signing off. Talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.